All right, we'll go to our, our study on Bible lists, and I've been going down through various topics and looking at those and expanding on those. Those come originally from Harold Wilmington as he compiled uh, all kinds of different facts about the Bible, and there's one of his books called Bible Lists, so that's where I've gotten that from. And um, tonight we're going to look at these various political and religious groups that are mentioned in the Bible, because uh, there were a lot. And sometimes as you're reading through scriptures, uh, you'll, you'll see a name or something attached, and if you don't give it much thought, you just go on to the next verse, and you wonder, well, who was that, or what were they, and what was that all about? And so uh, we're going to look at those, and there's, there's terms. And by the way, you'll find in scripture, as you part of being a good student of the Word of God is studying the, um, the, the culture that surrounded that era of time, because to see and you know, kind of interpret the facts of what was going on or some of the things that were going on, you have to know the various people that were involved, right, and the various groups. And some of them are pretty self-explanatory, and others are uh, just maybe a little more study. And that's what we're looking at here tonight, just sort of a casual look at um, a list of about 17 different groups. And the first one, and they're lumped together as the diaspora, or the word diaspora means I scatter. Literally, that's what it means, I scatter. And it's the diaspora Jews, and they were the ones that were scattered um, beginning at around the time of the uh, Babylonian captivity. And you know there were Jews that were taken in that, and they went off to Babylon, and some remained there. And others, through that persecution as they were scattered, um, that's exactly what they did. They went out into other parts. And so they were part of what they call the diaspora. Now, if you know a little bit more about history, that occurred in 586 BC. And after that, coming to around the 300s of BC or the 4th century BC, you have um, the, the Greek warrior and king you know, of Macedon, and that was Alexander, Alexander the Great. And he would come in and he would conquer the known world, essentially, and he got as far as into India um, in that direction, and he basically conquered, and his armies conquered all through the Middle East, uh, what is you know Europe up into what is would be modern-day Germany as far as pushing up against that, um, the groups of people that lived there, uh, but basically all through the Mediterranean, including Africa, um, northern Africa. And so the Greco-Roman world appears on the scene around that 300 BC and then from the Greek culture you get the Romans that come out of that and and both shared very much the same things you culturally it wasn't a huge leap between the Greeks and the Romans Um, but you have Jews during that time that in every instance were were further scattered in those realms and some were scattered because They were Jews and being persecuted. Most of them, though, however, went because they just adapted to the culture and they went out and they spread to the various parts of those empires. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 2, and what's Acts chapter 2 about? What's the big thing that happens in Acts chapter 2? The birth of the church, yeah. The day of Pentecost. It says when the day of Pentecost had fully come, it was fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And God... um, begins a new entity it's called the church of god and he uses uh, at that time scattered jews that had come back to jerusalem to celebrate uh, the pentecost and they were there and we read that in acts 2 5 and there were dwelling in jerusalem jews devout men from every nation under heaven so 
all the nations out there, there were Jews that were present. And you come down to verse 9 of that, and it names them. It says Parthians and Medes and Elamites and those dwelling in Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and then Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. And then it goes on and says, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. And we know on that day, there were about 3,000 added to the church that were believers. And they were part, a lot of them, of the diaspora Jews, those that were scattered, and they would come back in that time. Interesting, because the Bible says that's what God was going to do with the Jew. Back in Deuteronomy, remember the Lord said, if you... If you rebel against me and I'm going to allow your enemy to come in and they're going to scatter you. But I will draw you back. And he's done that time and time and time again. Deuteronomy 28:25, The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. Scattered, right? And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. And is that not true? in that the amount of anti-Semitism is really the, the term we would use that has arisen among the nations because of a few Jews that were living there. And I think behind that is a hatred for the Jew because it's Satan knew that Messiah was coming out of the Jewish people and he hates everything dealing with Messiah. And that is very much a spiritual battle. Psalm 147 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. For it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers together the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He counts the number of the stars. He calls them all by name. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. And is that not fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? When he was here in the Gospels, there's a quote from there, isn't there? Right from that psalm. That he heals the broken heart and he binds up their wounds. Jesus is the great gatherer. And the church is the evidence of that gathering of Jews and Gentiles into one new entity, a new body. Well, you have the diaspora, the scattered Jews. They're mentioned often in, uh, well, they're, they're there in scripture. And they're mentioned a few times prominently. Uh, in Acts seventeen eighteen, you have another couple groups here mentioned. In Acts 17 is Paul. He's in Athens, uh, the capital of Greece. And there he is, and he's telling people about Jesus. He's in the marketplace with them, talking to them. Um, He eventually goes to the Agora, this hill, later called Mars Hill. And there he would speak to them on the Areopagus, the Mars Hill, the place where people would go to listen and talk and listen to their favorite philosophers or whatever else. And in that time, it says there were certain Epicureans and Stoic philosophers that, well, they encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And you have here mentioned the Epicureans and the Stoics. And they were two groups that were, they were groups of, a camp of philosophy, a philosophy, the the word literally means love of knowledge, um, but it's often a way of thinking. And they come from from groups out of the Greek world, 
And often, like even today, sometimes they use the word Epicurean as someone who is very uh, licentious, somebody who just lives a life of pleasure and is only living for pleasure. And it's sort of a misnomer because the ancient Epicureans and Epicurus, who lived in the 300s BC, um, he would, I would say, parallel more closely to what Buddhism presents today. Um, Buddhism presents the that essentially that we only find our deepest pleasures in releasing ourselves from ourselves right um i'm not saying this is is a right view of things but if you ask a buddhist about things they are not theistic they don't believe in a god you believe that the highest god really is themselves even though they wouldn't say it that way and that you want to release yourself from cravings whether it be driven by food or from other things that we do that are cravings so that you are in control of those things. And Buddhism at its heart kind of teaches that. Well, Epicurus said the same thing in essence. He believed that wisdom was obtained and, and ultimately in wisdom um, that you would, uh, you would be released from those things. In a letter he wrote, translated, he wrote to a man named uh, Minosius, and he said, when we say that pleasure is the end and aim, we do not mean the pleasure of the prodigal or pleasures of sensuality, as we are understood to do so uh, by some through ignorance, prejudice, and willful misrepresentation. By pleasure, we mean the absence of pain in the body and of trouble in the soul. It is not by an unbroken succession of drinking bouts and revelry, not by sexual lust, nor the enjoyment of fish and other delicacies of a luxurious table, which produces a pleasant life. It is sober reasoning searching out the grounds of every choice of avoidance and banishing those beliefs through which the greatest tumults take possession of the soul. And, and that's sort of more his idea of things. He had this battle going on within him, and he didn't know how to overcome it. And come 300 years later in the time of Paul, and you have groups of the Epicureans, and they had believed that, but they were often known to, to still indulge in pleasures because that was their chief aim. But uh, again, it was more of a philosophical camp than a just a you know a drunken orgy kind of thing, as sometimes that word is used today. So you have the Epicureans; they were there when Paul was speaking, and bring in this. They, remember, they were not theistic; they didn't believe in gods. And here's this one that comes along, and he's preaching Jesus, who is a god, and he's risen, and they want to hear what this babbler has to say, you know. And by the way, there were probably some that believed in that. Um, then you have the Stoics, and they're mentioned. And, and the, about the same time as the Epicureans, there was the group of called Stoics, and they were philosophers too. Now, they were theistic. Now, not like monotheistic. They would have believed in the many gods of the Greeks, um, and they would have tried to explain things from a spiritual realm, those kind of things. But they did believe that you obtain knowledge through logic. And it was the Stoics that came up with words that would influence the way the, the rest of the world would think in many ways. They came up with the term logos, right? It's the very same word that uh, is used to describe Jesus in John chapter 1. And the logos became, is God, right? The logo, it says that the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. And remember, uh, you know, the, the scripture opens up with that idea in John 1 of, of the highest concept found in Greek philosophy, which was the logos, the communication. A little different the way the Greeks looked at it and the Hebrews looked at it, though. See, the Stoics believed that the highest 
place man could ever reach was mortal man was was logos let's picture logos as like a a, a ball that's right here and imagine taking a cup like one of those little plastic cups that slide into one another, you know, that we have out there in the dispenser. Right. And you, you set that ball on top of that cup. And then they believed Logos was also the lowest that a god could descend. So the gods of all the different gods in their pantheon of gods, they believed, could come down and reside with men, but not quite. And they would be like on top of the ball. And the two cups never meet. You picturing what I'm saying? Yet the Hebrew understanding, when they came to the word logos, and again, 300 years before Christ, there was what we call Hellenism, the Greek influence in among the Jews, and there were all these Jews that were speaking Greek. And they came up with the idea of logos. And when John uses the term logos, he's not using like the lowest form that God can come and the highest that man can come and they don't meet, but instead take those two cups and put one within the other. The Logos of the Bible is a God who actually dwells as a man. And he comes into one entity. And he's the highest concept of God and the highest concept of man all in one. It's a little different, the Logos. But the term comes out of the Stoics. um, And they are mentioned in this, this thing. So these are things that in the first century world, like people would have been very familiar with, these groups of people, as they ran into them. They would have been sort of like of a sort of a philosophical party. I'm a Stoic. I'm an Epicurean. You know, I'm this, I'm that, and different groups. And again, they were theistic in their view and therefore more open to the idea of a God, um, Jesus, who is risen. But um, anyways, we don't know a lot about him other than that uh, in the Bible. And... Uh, let me see here. I'm just looking at... Oh, here we go. We'll go to another one here in Luke. Chapter 13, you have Galileans. And this is not those directly from Galilee, although the name is associated with the geographic region. But referring to, it says here, there were present at that season some who told him, that's Christ, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans? He's making two distinguishing groups here. Because they suffered such things. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 of whom the tower in Salem fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he's referring to a group of Galileans, which were a rebellion that began about the time of the... Well, actually, it was based in the, the tax that Quirinius had when... Remember, Luke chapter 2 opens up in a time when all the world shall be taxed. Right? Caesar made that declaration. And governor of uh, that area was Quirinius, right? And he was, he was going to tax the Jews, well, there was a fellow named Judas, Judas of Galilee, and he said, we're not paying taxes to Rome. It's wrong. God is the only one that we pay tribute to. And so he led a rebellion against Rome in 6 BC, the same year in which uh, that declaration was made. Mind you, our, our calendar's off by 
several years to the exact moments of, you know, when Christ was born, I realized there's like Anno Domini, you know, year of our Lord in B.C. before Christ. But the calendar we're on today is not exact for those dates. Christ was most likely born somewhere around 6 B.C. Uh, in in the, the scale that we have today. But just so you understand that. Anyways, it was the same time that Judas led a rebellion. And it was abruptly put down by Rome. Um, he was killed. His ones that rose up with him, their properties were burned. Many of them were killed. And... They were remembered, and they continued, factions of the Galileans continued to cause trouble for Rome all the way up into 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. The Galileans were still at it, fighting Rome. So for all those decades, they're doing that for over 70 years. So that's the Galileans. They're mentioned. Not to say that Jesus, who was from Galilee, couldn't also be called a Galilean, but he was not part of a tax rebellion or anything like that. Um, like I said, there are two different groups he mentions. And you, re- you read more of them in Acts 5. Um, in the history, it says in Acts 5.37, After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. So guess what? The Galileans were used in the dispersion, too, of more Jews. And that's the way it works, Right? So these groups, how things work, right, in that. Um, Let's see here. Oh, the next group, the Hellenists. And I've already mentioned them, Hellenists. And they were the Greek-speaking Jews. And again, that comes back from the time when Alexander the Great conquered that area of the world. He brought with it the Greek language. And very timely, Galatians says that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son. In the, very, in, in the interpretation of that in Galatians is this, that at the very right moment in history, God chose to send forth the Christ, his son. And, you know, it's so true. Because you come to the time when Jesus is born, and you have a common language spoken throughout most of the civilized world, and it's Greek, a very precise language, a language of logic, a language of very clear communication, And it was then that God would bring forth his son and the New Testament would be written in Greek. A very, you know, clear and precise language. And I think that's, uh, you know, neat how God used the very timing of that. But this is where the Hellenists are mentioned. Now in those days when the number of the disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. So two groups of Jews. Those that were the Hebrew Jews that spoke Hebrew and that were, you know, Jews that had lived in Judea, and then the Hellenist Jews that were around them. And there arose a dispute about their widows. And uh, they were saying they're neglecting the daily uh, distribution of needs for the widows. And so they appoint deacons. And the deacons were there to minister to the widows of the church, both among the Hebrews and the Hellenist Jews. And these were Christians, actually. I should clarify that. But their background would have been that same way. So some of the culture that you're in comes into the church, doesn't it? And there was still tension between those two groups. Uh, Mark, oh, then the Herodians. Those are the next ones. The Herodians. And they're in Mark chapter 3. 
Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. And by the way, the Herodians and the Pharisees are always, almost always painted in a bad light. The Herodians are. But the, the Pharisees, we have a couple good Pharisees. And then we have Paul who's converted. He was a Pharisee. Um, but, and it just shows nobody is, you know, like, like Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He's a Pharisee. And we'll come to the Pharisees in a moment. But they were often, often in cahoots with these other groups, like the Herodians. And the Herodians were um, basically, they're mentioned in the Gospels several times. Again, in uh, Mark 8.15, it says, Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Remember who the, the king was at the time of the birth of Christ? King Herod. He's actually Herod the Great in history. And then his sons uh, also carried the title of Herod. And Herod was not like a proper name. It was a title. And it referred to the family. And you have uh, the Herodian dynasty. Now, when the Romans came in, and they were there at the time of Herod the Great and all of that, they gave the Herodian dynasty certain authority and power, but not everything, obviously. Um, Rome was still in charge, but they allowed the Jews to have their own leadership, political leadership, and the Herodians were part of that. Now, the Pharisees were like the religious protectors of Judaism, and the Herodians were the political protectors. And they weren't always doing good for people. We know that Herod the Great was, well... He was a lunatic in what history describes him. Uh, when Herod was nervous, everybody was nervous because they knew somebody was going to die. And we know like the slaughter of the innocents when Herod says, go and kill all the children of Bethlehem, the male children of Bethlehem under two years of age, right? You remember? And that was Herod. If he thought there might be some rebellion in his family or somewhere, he would just have them all killed just like that. And that carried on. Later on in the book of Acts, you read of, of Herod. Again, that's a grandson of Herod the Great. And he's in that still that Herodian dynasty. Uh, a lot could be said about them, but the Herodians wanted political independence for the Jewish people, but they never did get it. And um, they wanted to... It's interesting that these two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, are together right here, plotting against Jesus. But it's interesting, the Pharisees wanted a king, but they wanted a king to come out of the house of David. And the Herodians wanted a king, but they wanted him to come out of the house of Herod. So they didn't even believe in the same kind of political aims. And of course, Jesus was going to, he's going to come out of the house of David. And of course, the Pharisees didn't want Jesus either, right? So uh, you, you see all that, how that works. So anyways, you have that. Um, Again, Mark 12, and then they sent him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. Again, we see how often they, they did that. They tried to get Jesus and uh, did that. Um, you have the Levites. They're the next ones. Now, And they're mentioned several times. Now, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now, that's of John the Baptist. And he's baptizing in the Jordan River. And as he's baptizing, there's people coming. And some of those people were, were priests and Levites. Uh, would have been from the tribe of Levi. And we know that's the priestly tribe. 
They were the ones back under Moses' time. Aaron, right, was of that tribe, and, and Moses as well. And they established the religious order under the law. Well, actually, God established it. And coming to the day of Christ, you still have priests and Levites. And they would have been very much involved in the religious practices and the ceremonies and stuff associated with the temple in Jerusalem and, and also in the other places around the, the um, province of Judea. And they aren't always spoken of in good form, although we have John the Baptist, a Levite, because he came from the tribe of Levi. His father, Zacharias, was in the temple offering up incense at the time of incense because his number had come up to do that. So often it's been said like this of John the Baptist. Um, you know, one of the functions of a priest, who, and they always had a high priest, one of the, it would serve as high priest out of that order in accordance with what the books of Moses say like Aaron was the first high priest uh, Levitical priest at the time when you get to the time of Christ the priesthood and the Levites most of them had really degenerated into they weren't really serving God I mean there must have been sincere people there and doing that and well but but they were really serving a function of an order and not looking for Messiah generally And I believe that the high priest, who should have been the one to anoint Jesus as Messiah and to show and declare his generation and to say, this is Messiah, because that was what the high priest's job was, is to be pointing people to God. Instead, God had to take a man out of the wilderness of the tribe of Levi who wasn't dressed as a priest, who wasn't involved in the functions of the orders that they were doing, and he brings him along, and he's the voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist. And I I would say this, and I can't point to a Bible verse to this, but I often think that God had John the Baptist as the high priest of Israel at that time, of the Jewish people, but he wasn't recognized as such. He was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He was a prophet. Um... And you can say that biblically for sure. Anyways, they come, they ask him. And there were other people there present at the baptism of John. When John was baptizing by the river, there were soldiers who were there. There were tax collectors. I mean, wow. You know, people are coming out to see this man and hear him preach. And they were being baptized as a sign of repentance. I think that's, that's pretty neat. Now, the next time, like another time the Levite is mentioned is in the story of the Good Samaritan. And this Levite, who is supposed to be, you know, serving his people, didn't. Or in this case, we have a man that's, remember, left by the side of the road. He's been robbed and beaten. And, and it says, likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. A Levite just said no more. And a priest came along, did the same thing, but have also been from the tribe of Levi. But a certain Samaritan... Now, I like that because you'll find the Samaritans, um, when it's talking about individuals, often they're in a positive light. And yet they were the outcasts of that whole culture. Uh, Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, even though they came from the same roots. One from the northern kingdom. And on, before the Babylonian uh, captivity of the southern kingdom in 586 B.C., um, over 100 years before that, you had the Assyrians take captive the northern kingdom almost 200 years. And that left them scattered and all that. And some that stayed in there 
uh, and had mingled in with some of their conquerors and everything else were the Samaritans. And it, it represents a geographic region in the uh, east of Galilee. Um, but it was, it was also a, you know, a, 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 like a term to describe who they were. And the Jews in that counted themselves as purely Jewish didn't think that the Samaritans were worth anything because they were half-breeds. And that's the way they kind of looked at each other, or they looked at them. Samaritans theologically believed that Judaism had become too, I guess, liberal, it would be the term we'd use today, in that they had adopted other books other than the Torah, the five books of Moses. The, the Samaritans believed that those were the only books of the Bible. And yet we find when Jesus comes along, many of them were ready to hear the word of God and receive him. And even today, I, I read that there's just less than a thousand people that still practice the religion of the Samaritans, which is a very simplified form of Judaism uh, in that. Anyways, I better move on. Uh, Going to run out of time for sure. The Samaritans. And I'm trying to find out what I did with this. Oh, here's... Um, you have proselytes. Those are the, also there. We're going to come to those, but let's look at this. Um, it says, And Stephen, full of faith and of power, did great wonders and signs among the people. And then there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, or libertines, as it says in the King James, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. And then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, seized him, and brought him to the council. And that group that is mentioned there is, uh, in essence, the, the libertines or the freedmen. And they appear in Scripture here. And they were ex-slaves. Now, mind you, in that time, somewhere around 20 to maybe up to 28 million people were in slavery in the Roman Empire. That's a lot of people. There were more slaves than Roman citizens. And when you say slaves, slaves could own property and they could you know, own businesses and they could do things, but they were counted as slaves, not citizens. And they often came into that relationship as a slave sometimes by birth having you know that you didn't get out of that easily but you um you could if you fought for rome for example you could be freed um you could be freed by a declaration of something like a, a certain group of people fought and because you were a slave from that group you could be freed there were many ways you could be freed um, you could pay your freedom, the price of a slave. Those are various ways. But whatever happened, they, these were libertines, people that were formerly slaves, and now they were freed. And they, had their, they were Jews, and they had their own synagogue. And I find it sort of ironic, almost a paradox of things. You know, we were talking about that last time. Where these former slaves who were one time taken capture or, or captured by other men and, and held against their freedom now took Stephen and held him against his freedom, you know. And they would do the same, they would do what 
had happened to them, to, to Stephen, even worse, they would kill Stephen or be part of that group that would kill him. The Libertines, Acts chapter 6, verse 9, is that reference to them. <clears throat> then there's the Nazarites. And we know of one, we just talked about Samson in great detail in our book of Judges there. And he took the Nazarite vow. And you can read of the Nazarite vow in the book of Numbers. Um, what number? Like I'm trying to remember what chapter that's in. It's in, I'll tell you right now. It's in Numbers chapter 6, the Nazarite vow. But they're mentioned, um, where, where that appears in the New Testament is with John the Baptist. He appears to be one who had taken the Nazarite vow. Uh, I'll go back to my screen here. In Luke one fifteen, it says, For he, referring to John, will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall n- n- drink neither wine nor strong drink. That was part of the Nazarite vow. And he will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And as John is described, he appears to be one who may be under that vow. Uh, but anyways, Nazarites, they appear throughout Scripture. And I just say that in the New Testament, this is probably the only reference to that. And there may be others that just aren't referred to in that light. And then, let's see here, we have... The next group. There we go. You have the Nazarites and then, oh, the Pharisees. Better time is it? The Pharisees, we've already mentioned them. And that literally means one who is separate. And they were separatists, legalists. And they believed themselves to be the guardians of both the written and oral law. And so as a Pharisee, a ruler, you, that was your function. You, you protected the law. And they are painted, for the most part, in a very negative light, with the exception of some. Like you have, um, you have Nicodemus, who appears to be a man that comes to faith in Christ. And we have Nick, John 3, which is just a wonderful chapter on the new birth. And Nicodemus is there. Uh, and, of course, you have one that's converted later, which is Paul. Um, so, you know, you have those that are there. Anyways... My verse for that would be Matthew 12 and verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Uh-oh. First of all, Jesus is walking on the Sabbath. Shouldn't do that. You, couldn't only, you could only walk so many steps on the Sabbath to be in violation of the Sabbath. The Pharisees enforced that. And his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Oh, no. They were plucking grain on the Sabbath. Shame on you! But they were hungry. And look what it says. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what it is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Isn't that awful? See, the Pharisees got caught up in the legalisms of things. And uh, we see that over and over again. In, in Matthew 12, uh, I'm trying to see what I have there. I think I... That's not the verse I wanted. Here we go. In Matthew 23, that good portion of that chapter deals with the Pharisees and Jesus preaching to them. And I often think about how Jesus spoke. Sometimes we have this picture of of a Jesus that was kind of soft-spoken, with soft hands, you know, and never got his fingernails dirty. You know, that's sad that we've kind of put that kind of man view of a man on Jesus. 
I don't think you guys have necessarily, but I think Jesus was, he, first of all, he was a carpenter's son. He probably had calloused hands, you know. He was a man that would probably have a voice, well, for, certainly he could preach to thousands. Imagine he had quite a booming voice when he spoke. And you come to this chapter, and you just picture him kind of laying down the, the truth in a, in a way to these Pharisees. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And I don't think he said it like I just said. I think he yelled it out. And I'll, I'll let you just imagine that. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. <laughs> wow. Jesus didn't have a very good things to say to the Pharisees. He didn't tickle their ears anyways, but he spoke truth to them. And by the way, they hated him for the most part, because they sought to kill him at every step. And by the way, it's mentioned here in this verse, proselytes. And that's my next category, proselytes. And the, the word proselyte um, is someone that would have come into the Jewish faith in that whole thing. One who would, in this case, very negatively, they come in under the proselytization of the Pharisees and they just make them worse off. Jesus says, you make him, what, twice as much a son of hell. That's awful. I mean, you're on your way to hell and he makes it worse. And that's what legalisms for salvation does. It, it doesn't help you a bit. There were two groups of proselytes in the Jewish um, world. There were what they called righteous proselytes. Those were people that adopted the law and the Jewish customs entirely. They became very much practicing Jews. And they could come from any nation <clears throat> and they, they could do that. And they were often called uh, the righteous proselytes. That was the Hebrew term that was used of them. And then there were gate proselytes. And they were like a resident alien that would live in underneath the umbrella of Judaism. But they, weren't, um, they hadn't adopted all the customs. And they were only, there was actually laws that spelled that out. And they only had to be bound and conformed to the seven laws of Noah. And those were, do not worship idols, do not blaspheme God's name, do not murder, do not commit fornication, do not steal, and do not tear the limb from a living animal, and do not fail to establish rule of law. So very, the seven laws they believe that Noah had. And then later that was expanded on in Moses' time. Anyways, there were proselytes, and those would be people that would have gathered in. And some of the more notable proselytes in Judaism, uh, Rahab, right, in Joshua's time, Gentile city in a condemned city, and she believes the God of the Jews, the God of Joshua, and she's grafted into Israel. One of her later on, in, in, out of her family, Boaz marries another one, a Moabite woman named Ruth, and she was a proselyte to Judaism. Acts chapter 10, you have Cornelius, and he's a devout man, and he's, he's you know, in the, the Jewish scriptures, and most likely he was a proselyte to Judaism. Cornelius, and then you have the, possibly the Ethiopian eunuch, although it was more likely that 
the Ethiopian eunuch was part of the Jews from Ethiopia that had gone back when the Queen of Sheba had come to see Solomon and, and, and went back with Judaism to Ethiopia. And then hundreds of years later, over a thousand years later, you have like an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch who is reading from the scroll of Isaiah. And he was probably as well uh, a Jew, but not necessarily a proselyte, but maybe. Um, and, and we'll leave that so for, for that. And then you have the Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, however you want to pronounce it. And that's the council. Um, oh, I, I think I jumped ahead too far. Uh, I'm hoping to get down some of these here. Uh, what was the next one I had on my list? Oh, publicans. That's the one. And the publicans were basically the state-appointed tax collectors um, of Roman revenue. And though the Jews hated their... They were, they were Jews who basically sold themselves out to work for Rome. So most Jews hated publicans. And they're... They're kind of cast castaways, and it's interesting. You find in a public in, or in a uh, positive sense, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners, and we see several instances where there's a positive sort of picture of faith among the publicans. And if you want some of those, let me go back to that. Luke chapter three, they were there at the baptism. That John or baptisms that John was doing. It says, then tax collectors, those are publicans, also came to be baptized and said, said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. You know, there were sincere tax collectors that came and, and they wanted to hear what John had to say. In Matthew 9, it says, and Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew. That's the same one who wrote the gospel of Matthew. Sitting at the tax office... And he said to him, follow me. And so he arose and followed him. It was a tax collector that would write the first book of the New Testament. And then you have Luke 18. Jesus speaks a parable. And he says, also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, a publican. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus took note of that. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Wow. He uses a tax collector. And I think this is cool because if you piece this in the connection chronologically, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's going by way of Jericho. And here Jesus tells this, this parable of a tax collector who, who, who was basically justified, justified by faith. And I think there was a tax collector in the very next chapter. His name was Zacchaeus, remember? And he must have heard that story. Because when Jesus comes to town, Zacchaeus goes up in a tree. And he wants to see Jesus. And, and Jesus sees him says, come on down. I'm going to your house today. I mean, that's the story. And Zacchaeus is saved. And Zacchaeus gives back his money that maybe if he wronged somebody. And he, he, he makes sure he repays more than that. And again, a positive light of 
tax collectors, publicans. And that's Luke 19.8, right? Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Yeah. And then there's the Sadducees. They didn't believe in the resurrection. And they were a group of um, religious, a religious group, and they didn't believe in angels. Um, they didn't believe in uh, really the eternal state. Um, and they believed, they too were like the Samaritans. They only believed that, that there were five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, Genesis, down through Deuteronomy. And they didn't believe in a resurrection. That was a big one. And the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees also believed there was other books of the Bible, the prophets and, um, you know, the Psalms and, and the historical books. Those had been canonized already as part of Scripture. And I'll move along here. I know I'm trying to get through this. So I only got a few more. So you have the Sanhedrin. And then you have, and by the way, Paul uses that to his advantage in Acts 23. When you have him at Jerusalem and there's this crowd that wants to, um, well, they want to arrest him and take him by force. And then he perceives as a group of Sadducees and this Pharisees there and he sets them against themselves. Because <laughs> Paul says, I'm being persecuted because I believe in the resurrection. And now it even gets worse. And then the Romans step in and remove him. And, and you know, But you see the opposition that went on in those parties that happened. And the, Fer- the Sadducees wanted him dead. Um, what's my next one? I'm almost there. Get back here. You have the Samaritans. I already mentioned them. Uh, the Sanhedrin, the religious council. And the religious council was made up of Judges, that's what they really were, and they conducted the civic and religious affairs of uh, Israel, of Judea, and they were under the Roman umbrella of authority. The Jews had certain, you know, things they could do in their own realm of enforcement. They couldn't enforce capital punishment. That's why Jesus could not be killed by the Jews in the Sanhedrin. Couldn't make him act. They could, they could say he's worthy of death, but they couldn't actually enforce that. That had to go through the Romans. To be crucified, so it was Pilate's decision, and the uh, Sanhedrin in they they were actually there was a lesser Sanhedrin, and these were courts of twenty three judges, and they would be in some of the cities around the the country, and then there was a great Sanhedrin, and that was a made up of seventy one judges, seventy and and one as the it would sit as high judge, and they were called the council often. They were the ones where Jesus appears before them in trial, and they wanted him dead, and they brought you know false accusations against him and all of that. Um, and so you see the Sanhedrin, and I'll just read real quick a verse here. And Matthew twenty six, for example. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, "He has spoken blasphemy." What further need do we have of witnesses? And look now, you have heard his blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered and said, he is deserving of death. But they couldn't put him to death. Interestingly enough, the Jews had just lost in the previous year that power to adjudicate capital crimes. And 
that goes back to a prophecy in Genesis 49 when it says the scepter of Judah shall not depart until Shiloh comes. And in the Jewish writings of that day of Jesus, they, when they lost the ability to take on capital punishment and kill, kill people they believe were blasphemers, they said, we have the scepter of Judah has departed and Shiloh has not come. Shiloh was a reference to Messiah. Shiloh was already there publicly. Jesus was in his second year of public ministry. That prophecy of Genesis 49 was fulfilled for the, to the very law, the Sanhedrin. And then you, you have them mentioned. And then the last group is the scribes. And the scribes were essentially the lawyers of the day. And they were the ones that um, are mentioned. And like they're, they're often with the, the scribes and the Pharisees. They, they kind of were together. But they were the ones that were in charge of uh, all legal matters. They searched things out. If you wanted to know where it says this or said that in the Bible, in the scrolls of the Bible, or in all the other um, rabbinical writings, you would go to a scribe. And so think of them sort of as the lawyers of the day. But they also were certain scribes that were uh, tasked with actually copying out documents, including the Word of God, and they did it very meticulously um, to do that and to keep it because didn't have printers and copiers and things like that that day or printing presses, but somebody would handwrite something. And the scribes... Um, we're very diligent in that to the point where we have the preserved word of God today because of the diligence of Hebrew scribes that, that maintained that it was accurate from one copy to the next. And that's a whole other study of how we get our Bible and stuff. But anyways, those are groups. There's, there's more groups, but that's, that's really the major groups that you come across. I don't know if you learned anything new or whatever, but as you read through your Bible and you maybe come across those names, uh, maybe it'll be something that you go, oh, hey, wait a minute, I know what that is or where they came from. Um, Maybe it'll be helpful. Lord, we're grateful for your word and thank you for it. Thank you, O God, that you are the one who is indeed in control of all things. and, And Lord, I am glad that even in our systems that we think we make that lord you have in control the affairs of men and lord you're doing that even now in our own country here and around the world and in all this jesus in the end will still reign and we thank you for that and we pray in his name tonight amen thank you folks